my name is Andy. If you're here for the first time, we hope you feel at home. I'm part of the team as well. Um, and uh, I, I'm going to launch straight in. If there was a, uh, a title for this talk, the one that I've written on my notes is The Secret to Happiness. The Secret to Happiness, which I want to talk about. Um, I, I remember when I was a little kid, I used to play a game, I think a lot of little kids just do it instinctively, where I would try and stay up as late as I could past my bedtime. And one of the ways that I would do that, one of my strategies was I would just ask my parents big questions just as they were tucking me in. And my dad particularly was a sucker for this because he also works for a church, so he can never resist if I ask him a question, give me a really long answer to it. But um, I, I don't remember now, all these years later, many of the questions I asked him uh, or his answers, but I do remember one, and I think it was from when I was about six years old, and he was just tucking me up, and I just uh, looked at him and I said, Dad, what is the secret to happiness? And I remember he paused and he, he thought for a moment, and then he said, learning to be content. And that's, that's always stayed with me. And, and uh, years later, as I've read my Bible, I've thought, oh, now I've found out where he nicked that from. And I want to talk on the verses um, that, kind of, that speak of this. And so you can find them if you have a Bible in Philippians chapter 4. If you have not got a Bible, I'm going to read it anyway, and it will come up on the screen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Um, but this is a letter that Paul wrote to one of his churches in a place called Philippi. And he's really writing to them because they've sent him a gift. They've sent him some money to kind of support him in his ministry. And uh, so he's writing this letter in response to, not just to that, but to about a whole load of other stuff. But towards the end of the letter, he thanks them for this gift that they've sent him. And this is what he writes. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And uh, I really want to try and, I suppose, crack open those verses and just, just get some of the, what's the, what does that actually mean um, out of, from them? And, and I'm not sure there's been a more discontent period in history than the one we're living in now. Bizarrely, although we have more um, than, than we've ever had in terms of affluence as the human race, uh, the, the, the reality is that uh, we and many of the people around us are seeking, pursuing, desperately searching for happiness. And yet we feel like we haven't found it. And um, the ways that we often go about happiness and, and seeking is just what everybody else does. And what we can tell ourselves is, oh, when I get those things, when I fulfill my wildest dreams, then I will be happy. And uh, this is where the rub comes because the fact that most of us never do manage to fulfill our wildest dreams. And so what happens as a consequence is we continue to live under this illusion that when I fulfill my wildest dreams, I will be happy and those things genuinely will bring me fulfillment. It's just I haven't got there yet and when I get there, I know I'll find it. But all the evidence that comes from people who have fulfilled what we might call our wildest dreams, the people who have made it, quote-unquote, suggests that the things that we so often look to for fulfillment do not ultimately fulfill. So money would be the classic example. Um, and I remember hearing this quote from this guy who was the richest man in the world way back when, but he was a guy called John Paul Getty, and someone once asked him, how much money 
richest man in the world, how much money do you need to be happy? And the richest man in the world responded, just a little bit more. And it's like seawater money. It's that thing of the more of it you drink, the thirstier you become. So it doesn't satisfy us. Um, we can end up thinking, this is what I allow myself to think, if I achieve something great, you know what, if I become known for having done something, whether that's as a celebrity or in some other kind of field, but if I manage to achieve something great, then I'll be content. Then I'll finally kind of like be able to be at peace with myself. And again, the evidence that comes from people who have done great things or have become famous suggests that that's not, it's just not that straightforward. So I came across this quote from Madonna. Um, she said this to Vogue magazine some time ago. She says this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. And um, we're also, as part of uh, the reality of the time that we're living in, targeted literally every single day by millions and millions of pounds worth of advertising that is aimed to help us feel like we do not yet have, we haven't yet found contentment. And then you come across a passage like this from a person like Paul, and he says, I've discovered it. And when I hear that and I look at the world that we're living in, what immediately one I want to go to Paul when he says, I found the secret, I want to ask him, Paul, tell me, what is the secret to being happy? What is the secret to being content? And often what we do is we look for it in the external circumstances. We think if I can get what's external in my life sorted out, the perfect set of circumstances, the perfect setup for my life, then internally I will, as a consequence of that, feel somehow content and feel somehow satisfied. But what's amazing about Paul's life is that after he becomes a Christian, the external circumstances of his life fall off a cliff. So when he becomes converted, um, you know, he goes from being a respected, influential member of a group called the Pharisees. He was in favor, really, with the powerful people in, in kind of the Jerusalem. And suddenly he becomes a Christian. And Christians, when Paul was converted, were a persecuted minority. And he was actually trying to hunt them down uh, until he became one of them. And so his, his whole life situation nosedives. And then it doesn't really get that much better because for the rest of his life, we read about it in the book of Acts. You can read about it in his letters. He suffers all sorts of horrific things. So regularly, he goes into a town and he is driven out by a mob that try and kill him. On more than one occasion, they nearly succeed. So there's one time they, they literally stone him and they think he's dead and so they just leave him lying there. And eventually he picks himself back up again and carries on. But um, there are moments where he's, he's shipwrecked. So he would travel around the Mediterranean and on three different occasions he, he gets shipwrecked. On one of those occasions he's shipwrecked and he says, I spent a day and night in the open sea. So I just picture Paul clinging to a bit of wood, you know, out there in the Mediterranean somewhere, kind of hoping he's going to wash up on shore. Um, the time that he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's in prison and he's expecting, you know, to be executed. It's kind of like he's kind of on death row. And yet Paul, whose external circumstances were like that, he says, I have discovered the secret of being content. And this is the secret. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do all this 
through him who gives me strength. Eugene Peterson, in the message, he paraphrases this passage. Let me just read it to you. He says this. Paul says, I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I've found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. And here it is. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. And basically what he's saying, I think, is I have discovered Jesus. I've come into relationship with him. And relationship with Jesus is so precious to me that in comparison to knowing him and being with him, all these other things that I used to think were important no longer carry the same kind of weight for me. So you might remember if you've been in the church uh, a little while, back in January, we were, we were kind of expecting and hoping for a donation to the church from a businessman uh, that Mike met one time. He said he was going to give to the Ministry of Soul Survivor, and it was a donation of £100,000. And we had been expecting it for a little while, and it hadn't come. And so Mike went to visit this guy, and we were all kind of like, oh, my word, I hope he hasn't changed his mind. And we were praying that he hadn't changed his mind. And uh, uh, Mike had this cup of tea with him, at the end of which the guy just wrote out a check, stuck it in an envelope, and gave it to Pilaf. And, and Mike rang me, because um, I'd been obviously waiting and praying back at home for, for this, hopefully, to come good, because we've got a building project and all that stuff. And Mike rang me, and he said, it hasn't happened. He hasn't given us £100,000. It's terrible. And uh, so we were down in the dumps. He said, can I come around and see you when I go back to Watford? Yeah, okay. So he came back over, came around to our house. And I wasn't totally sure whether he was joking or not until he walked through the door and I could tell he was really despondent. And I was like, oh, no, it really hasn't happened. This is awful. Um, and then, like, he spent a whole load of time telling us how bad it was. And then he, he said he didn't give us £100,000. He just gave us this. And he passed me the envelope. I opened it. There was a check for half a million pounds in this envelope. And, uh, you know, after wanting to punch him several times, Times, I started jumping up in the air, being like half a million pounds. I started taking a photo of this check as if I could go and cash it. Um, but I was just like, and we were all of us, I remember Mike Beth and I sitting in my front room, this check is worth more than my entire house. And just being like, like, we don't touch it, don't ruin it. You know, it was just this weird thing. I'm never gonna hold a check for half a million pounds again in my life. And uh, it was crazy. But imagine that you're walking down the, the main street of Watford and um, someone comes up to you and offers you five, 500 pounds cash. Now, if I were you, and you know, I'd be like, yes, I will take it. But let's say this guy writes a check, and it's not to Soul Survivor, it's to you for half a million. And so you're walking down the same street in Watford, and you've got this check for half a million pounds kind of tucked into your coat pocket. And then someone comes up to you and says, hey, would you like 500 pounds cash? But you know you've got this check for half a million. What are you going to do? It, 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 what I would do is I would say, yes. I would like 500 pounds cash, so that would be nice. But if they suddenly changed their mind and they said, well, we're not going to give it to you, I'd be like, well, okay, that's fine. Because I'm wandering around with half a million pounds, baby. It's tucked right here. So it's like, I'll take it if you're offering it to me. Like, I, you know, I'd rather have it than not have it. But I'm not too worried about it. It's not going to shake me too much if I'm not allowed to have it anymore. And I think what Paul is saying is he's describing a contentment a little like that where he says, I've received the treasure. I've received Jesus. I know him. I've discovered him. I've given my life to him, and he's given his all for me. And so it's like, I just, I'm just content. Like I, I'd rather have food than not have food, sure. Of course, I'd rather have plenty than, than be in one. Um, but it's like, well, if, I, if I'm in one, okay, because I've got him. 
I, there's, this, there's, this, there's this contentment in me now. And the truth is, I read a passage like this, and for me at least, it makes me realize how far I have to go as I seek to follow Jesus. Because I'm like, I, I love Jesus, but, but that is not a place where I live with this, this permanent level of contentment. And I suspect I'm probably not the only person. And what happens is, um, even those of us who call ourselves his people and who are his followers, we find ourselves tripping up in this area regularly. And, um, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the commandments that God gave to his people was, commandment number ten, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's slaves and oxen and donkeys and all that stuff. And uh, what coveting is, is it's not, um, it's not stealing something, it's not taking it, it's not killing somebody, it's not having an affair. What coveting is, is it's this inner grasping for something, this inner longing, yearning um, of the soul to try, if I get that, it will fulfill some inner emptiness inside of me. So I'm going to long for it because that will fulfill. If I can get that house or if I can get that wife or if I can get that, you know, whatever, those possessions, then that will, that will satisfy me. And who among us can say, I've never had a problem with that? You know, all of us will find at time to time, if you visit somebody who's got an incredible house, you know, and you can't even get on the property ladder in Watford, of course there's going to be a part of us that would be like, if only I could, if only I could rent my own place. Or if only I could own my own place. Or when you own a place, if only I could just build an extension at the back of my place, then, then I'd be content. Or re with relationships. You know, if only I could have one. I see other people having relationships. I'm single. I, I long for one. If only I could have that, then maybe I'd find contentment. Or if we're in a relationship, if only the person I was dating was a bit more like this and a bit less like that, then maybe, you know, we'd be more content. Um, sometimes it's a status thing. If I could just get to that position of significance, of influence, where I'm the boss, not the employee, where I'm kind of like top of the, you know, whatever hierarchy is, if I could get there, then maybe I would be content. So it's some of those big things, and sometimes it's just the everyday things, like, oh, if I could just go on a holiday, like these people seem to be able to afford, then we'd be content. My car's fine, but I think if I had a car like them, then I would be content. I have some followers on Instagram, but if I just had a couple hundred more, then I think I would be content. And uh, we look for it, again, like others do, in all the wrong places. And so this passage, for me at least, is a reminder to me of where it's really found. And uh, the place it's found, I think, for lots of us, what it's about is it's rediscovering that which we already know. Um, I don't know if you remember, but about three years ago, the Pokemon app came out. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to how many of you have got it. But uh, the, the, the app basically was, you know, everyone went mad for a little while running around trying to take pictures of Pokemon everywhere. And I, I know, I remember it because it was, it was just before the Soul Survivor festivals happened. And so I remember at the start of like one of the Soul Survivors, you see all these young people running around like crazy, running off into random spots in the middle of fields and just sort of like capturing Pokemon. And uh, they were all going nuts. And then gradually, as, as, as the week went on, as the five days went on, they kind of calmed down a little bit. And I couldn't work out what's happened to make them all sort of calm down about the Pokemon. Until one day, I walked into a cafe at Soul Survivor, and I saw that they had all paired themselves off. And they were sitting eating cheesecake with kind of like one spoon in Cafe Uno, gazing into each other's eyes 
eyes. And they've basically all fallen in love over the last sort of two or three days. And that is what happened. You know, in, you know, you're not so interested in Pikachu now that you found Lucy or whatever it is. Like you're, that, that used to be important. You would run all the way across a field to catch one, but now you found something much better. You're not that interested in it anymore. And that's kind of, I think, what, what Paul is saying here. It's like, it's not that we need to fall out of love with money and possessions and status and, and things like that. What it is, is it's falling in love with something that's so much better. Uh, another way of putting it is the expulsive power of a greater affection. I've got you now. And so these things, it's not that I don't care, but I just don't care like I used to. One of the, one of the pictures that came to my head as I was thinking about contentment and what it is to find contentment in him and him alone, is a story I came across years ago now. But it's this guy who, who was a chaplain in a hospital, and he talks about somebody that he met when he was working on one of the wards. I just want to read you what he says. The state-run hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It is not the kind of place that one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs, and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There's, there was a discolored and running sore covering one part of her cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held up the flower to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress that she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all the things that I had to think about. And the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? 
And she said, I think about my Jesus. Lots of folk would think that I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Seconds ticked and minutes crawled. And so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation as to why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? And I wonder whether if Mabel was asked that question, how can you do it, Mabel? I wonder whether her response would be, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I suppose all I'm really saying is it's the simplicity of what Paul is saying, which is to come back to the fact that we know him and he's given himself to us and we do life with him and in relationship with him. And, and knowing that strengthens us and walking with it strengthens us and it satisfies us in a way that nothing else will. Um, just, just before the summer, Mike preached on this passage, and I haven't forgotten it. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire but you. It's drinking our fill of Jesus and being satisfied with him. And one thing that helps us with that is just looking at the way in which Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because what he doesn't say is, hey guys, I've discovered the secret of contentment. If you do these four steps, then you will find it too. It's not a technique. And that's what I always want it to be. I always want it to be basically a, ver a Christian version of self-help. So it's like, if you do these four things, then you're going to be absolutely fine. And it's not that. What it is, is, is it's, not, it's not I'm doing these things. What, it, what he says is, is, he strengthens me. So I just receive strength from him. This is how I'm able to do all of this stuff. I've just discovered that I'm utterly dependent upon him, and he's good for it. Like, he'll help me. He'll help me do all of these things. And, and too often, what I've missed over the years, and maybe I'm not the only one, is that when we start to follow him, the source of our strength and the source of our power shifts. So it's not just that we're trying to do different things now. What it is is that the source of the strength for which we do anything now comes to him. And we miss that at our peril. So imagine you're sitting in a dark room watching the light bulb, which is switched off. And you're thinking as the sun goes down, I need this light to come on. So what you start to do is you think, right, okay, I'm going to use some positive thinking to try and get this light to come on. And you start thinking like it's on and trying to convince yourself that it's really on even though it's off. And then after a while, you think this isn't working. I need to try a new technique. So you go up to the light bulb and start polishing it, trying to get it to sort of come on as you do that. None of us would do that. As we sat in a room with the sun going down, we all know the way to get the light to go on is to go to the source of the power, the switch on the wall, and flick it. And in the same way, that the secret for us is not to look, first of all, to techniques that we employ, but the source of our power, which is him. It's to come back to him. I'm so discontent with this. I'm so sorry, Lord. I know. I, can you help me to change? I struggle in this area and I can't overcome it. Can you help me to change? I want to see this transformation in this person's life and I want to play a role, but I know in my own strength, I've got no hope. So can you be the source of my power? Can you strengthen me for that end? 
And uh, what Paul literally says, if you translate it literally, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he says is, for all things I have strength in the one strengthening me. I'm in him. I'm in Jesus. And that language happens loads of different points all the way through uh, Scripture. So Paul will say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He, he says, here's the great secret I've discovered. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's reminding us of the fact that we're in him. And I think he gets the facts of his salvation, and that leads to contentment in a way that so many of us, we struggle to get. And this language of being in Jesus is something that I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, how do you reply that to life? Like, I, I sort of understand some of the theory of it, and I still haven't got my head around it. But this is the best explanation that I've been able to come up with, and it's imperfect, right? But when we think about our being in Jesus, what is the consequence of that? Um, Beth and I were just falling asleep last night, and uh, for those who don't know, my wife Beth is, is very pregnant. She's due to have our fourth boy. It is going to be a boy, a fourth boy in like five or six weeks. And uh, anyway, as we're drifting off to sleep, Beth suddenly got really antsy, and she was fidgeting and, you know, moving around and stuff. I said, what's the matter? And she said, the baby has got hiccups. This is news to me, even though she's had three pregnancies before, that babies can get hiccups. And so she could feel this baby inside of her hiccuping. And um, I was like, oh, this is amazing. She was really annoyed. And I was like, this is so cool. So I put my hand on her tummy. And could you be, I could feel the baby, like literally hiccuping. His whole body was moving every time it did the hiccup. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. But at the moment, Baby Croft, hopefully for another five or six weeks, Baby Croft is inside of Beth. He is in Beth. So what does that mean? That means if Beth wakes up one morning and decides, today I'm going to go to Asda, Baby Croft cannot say, okay, you have a nice time at Asda. I'm going to stay here and watch TV for an hour and a half, and I'll see you when you get back. If Beth decides she's going to go to Asda, baby Croft, who is in Beth, is also going to Asda whether he wants to go or not. Uh, what it means is that if Beth eats something, baby Croft is also going to be eating it. Now, on this one, they seem to be in agreement. Baby Croft seems to like banoffee pie and chocolate and the final biscuit in the cupboard, and I don't know. He always has to get that. So um, Beth develops this habit of, I'm going to eat banoffee pie. That's, that's what baby Croft is going to be eating. He's going to be eating banoffee pie. He's eaten an awful lot in the last eight months. But it's, it's like, if she's eating it, then, then he's eating it. Here's the point. Here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, we are in Christ. We're in Jesus. That's what happens when we become Christians. It's the fact of our salvation. So, as a result of that, where Jesus goes, we also go. So, where's he gone? He's gone to be in the presence of the Father. That means we are also in the presence of the Father. He's gone into eternal life. That means you and I, by virtue of the fact that we're in him, have also gone into eternal life. What it means is that whatever Jesus receives, because we are in Jesus, we also receive. So he receives all the blessings of heaven. That means because we're in him, we also receive all the blessings of heaven. This illustration is obviously very limited. If you have the hiccups, he can still go to sleep. But, but do you get what I'm saying? You're in him. That's the fact. And, and I respond to that, and one of the things I would say is, but it just doesn't feel like that. You know, okay, you tell me that's the truth, but it just doesn't feel like that. And the solution, if that's where we're at, is to not try and get our feelings to sort of sort themselves out, but it's to come back to what's true. Because what happens is our feelings follow on from the facts when we trust in the facts. 
If I were to say to you, look, there's this promise of contentment, and it's for all of us. It's not for Paul the super Christian. This is for all of us. And I was to say, it's a bit like we all need to get into Jesus, guys. So let's all get into Jesus. That's like me saying, this is the sanctuary area of Warehouse 7. And what we need to do at the end of this service is we all need to get into the sanctuary area of Warehouse 7. You would be like, what are you talking about? How can I try and get into a room that I'm already sitting in? Exactly. You can't. You're already there. So if you don't know you're there, all you need to do is recognize that you are already there. But you can't get in. It's like Baby Croft at the moment is already inside his mum. You know, if he, could, if he and I could talk, apart from just the hiccups, and he was to say to me, I really want to get in my mum, I'd say, mate, you're in your mum. Just relax. You're in there. She's strengthening you right now, mainly with pie. Just enjoy it, because when you're coming out, it's going to be all milk. You know? Like, I'd say, you're in there. Be at peace. You're being strengthened. That's the point. And so often what we do is we miss the fact that that's the promise that's been given to us. And probably the area that most of us are most discontent, or at least if you're anything like me, is we're discontent with ourselves. And... Uh, you know, I am a perfectionist, but I know it just doesn't, doesn't just happen to perfectionists. I have this ideal Andy that wanders around, quite close to the real Andy, beating me up. You're not like this. You're too much like that. You thought that. You shouldn't have said that. You must do this. You haven't achieved that all the time. I don't know how to change it. I've tried really hard, and I can never be the ideal Andy. It doesn't happen. And what I've realized is the secret to contentment is to recognize he's given himself for the real Andy. He loves the real Andy with everything he's got. And that I'm in him now. And I can rest in him now. And he'll transform me and strengthen me. It's all about dependence on him. 